Good evening. It's good to be in the house of God. Amen? Amen. Well, we're in the book of Genesis, and uh, we're in the very, very beginning. So Genesis chapter 2, we finished Genesis chapter 1 last week. Um, any questions from last Sunday night? And if you weren't here, we talked about some of the creation uh, models of belief. And so I just thought if there was anybody who had a question, one of the thoughts that maybe was shared. Uh, I mentioned this morning that I am a proponent of a young earth. I believe that the earth has not been here for millions and billions of years. I believe that the earth uh, was created not too long ago. Uh, in fact, I would hold fast to the one day is equivalent to uh, 24 hours in the creation model. And, and I would let me, let me tell you why. When I think about the days of creation and when God created, and in six days he did all of his creative work, and on the seventh day he rested. There's something very unique, uh, certainly about the Hebrew word yom, that has about 2,280 plus uses in the entirety of the Old Testament. Over 1,100 of those uses are strictly for a 24-hour period. In fact, I believe that in every case when it is used with a number, for instance, uh, day one, that it is always used in a 24-hour period. So, we do have the actual wording in the original Hebrew that the first day uses that terminology in it was day one. So that is that lends to allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. One would say, well, if all of the uses of that Hebrew word yom for day, when it's associated with a number, all of them are understood to be 24-hour periods, even from the text, then it would seem reasonable that the very first usage of the word yom with a number would also be a 24-hour period. But even more convincing to this guy, personally, is that God gave Moses up on Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments, and God scribed them, if you will, with his own finger. And he wrote and said these words, and I want to just, let's, let's begin, let's just go to Exodus chapter 20 real quick. Exodus 20. And in Exodus chapter 20, I want to call it the fourth commandment, if you will. It begins in verse, uh, verse 8 of chapter 20, Exodus. It says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor the stranger who is within your gates. For in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth, 
the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So he with his own finger scribes and uses man's work week in the 24-hour context and he correlates that to his work being in six days and the seventh day he rested. That bears much weight with this guy when I read the scripture, allowing scripture to interpret scripture. So I would hold that the creation days were six literal days and the seventh day God rested. He was doing creative work and he was making six work of his creation. Now, so my, a question that came up last week was, what about the dinosaurs? And I didn't answer that question. If the earth is in fact young, and we've not been here for millions and millions and millions of years, what about the dinosaurs? When were the dinosaurs? When did these large seropods, the terrible lizards, the T-Rexes, and all of the Allosauruses, and you fill in the blank there, the Stegosauruses and the Triceratops, and all of those larger dinosaurs, when were they, and when were they on the earth? That seems like a reasonable question, because we have evidence of them from the fossil record. And the fossil record would seem to indicate the further you go down, the smaller the fossils, if you will, to the point where uh, we get to really small fossils. And so the assumption based on the rock strata is that over time and over eons of time that the animals evolved into larger animals, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we can, on a local scale, see that flood dynamics actually stratify the soil that they're in and the larger objects in the soil make their way to the top because of the wave motion in the water. It's enough of a current that causes the bigger items to move to the top, and it stratifies. And we can see that local flood dynamics. And so when you think about the Noadic flood being a flood that covered the entire surface of the earth, when the waters began to burst forth from the bowels of the earth as well as the water falling from the sky, it would have been coming in quite a volume. And in the process of coming in quite a volume, it would cause things to move. If you've watched any of the television uh, shows on like the uh, Discovery Channel or maybe you've watched the Weather Channel. Do we have any Weather Channel watchers besides me in the room? I love the Weather Channel and I love watching tornadoes I love watching hurricanes. I love, absolutely love, love, love watching. And flash floods, they are absolutely amazing. Flash floods will move material very, very rapidly. And if there is a whole, uh, what do you call a bunch of cows together? A herd, I guess, a herd of cows. Uh, if there's a whole herd of cows and they're in the way of the flash flood, guess what happens to all the cows? They get all tied up, tangled up, and mangled up wherever they get deposited. And oftentimes they'll get deposited in a very large cluster and they get covered with mud. And this happens regularly in, uh, in and on some rivers, even in Africa. 
and the wildebeest and the other animals, they all get clustered up together, and if they get encased in mud, when they decay, guess what all their bones have done? Their bones are all intermixed, and when we find dinosaur clusters, that's what we find. We find massive deposits of a large number of dinosaurs all mixed in together as if they were clustered by the movement of water. And so, but let me explain it in a more detailed manner in relationship to the text in uh, Genesis chapter 1. So looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 7 says, Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. So we have waters below and a amount of water above. Another translation would even utilize the word canopy, but this idea of a canopy of water. And if there's a canopy of water, water is translucent. In other words, light can pass through water just like it can pass through your windshield uh, on a sunny day. Now then, large animals require that their hearts would be able to pump blood, and if it's a seropod that has a 32-foot neck and its brain is way over here and its heart is way down here, that's a long distance for the blood to travel. And it would have to be a certain viscosity in order for it to be able to travel freely and quickly to get to its necessary places. In a uniform temperature for a greenhouse effect that a vapor canopy all around the, the earth would create a universal temperature with inside the atmosphere, if you will. And so we find in the text here that God separated the waters below from the waters above. And it would appear that there is this expanse between, because the scripture tells us there's an expanse between the waters above and the waters below, that there was likely a vapor canopy that encased the earth. And in that kind of a setting, several things would be very, very different. First of all, the atmospheric conditions would be completely different. One thing for sure is light that would pass through would not contain the UV rays which cause us to age more rapidly. Now, that's interesting to me. You buy sunglasses at the store, and you look for the ones that have the little decal on it, UV protective, so that when you put those on and you're looking into the sun and the rays are coming more direct, that you are actually protecting your eyes from the harmful rays that come from our sun. They travel at a different wavelength than the infrared and luminiferous portion of light. And so, if this vapor canopy was there, the light would refract off of the canopy that is ultraviolet, but the infrared and the luminiferous portion would pass through, but it would do the same thing that it does in your car outside on a warm day when you leave your windows rolled up. You leave your car for one hour, you go inside and do your commerce wherever you're going, maybe you go to the grocery store, you come out, you open up the door, and what do you feel? You feel a barrage of heat coming 
from inside the car because you've created a mini greenhouse. And that is exactly what would have transpired on the globe if, in fact, that is how God did his creative work. That universal temperature that would be with inside the confines of the atmosphere would create an environment that would be suitable for large lizards, large reptiles, which are cold-blooded. To this day, I lived, uh, I lived down in Southern California for a number of my earlier years, and we used to go to the desert, and we would go, and we would try and catch lizards in the morning because lizards move slow in the morning. When the first break of sun comes out, the sun hits the rocks and starts to warm the rocks up, and pretty soon the lizards go and they rest their bellies on the warm rocks to get their blood more viscous so it can flow through them so they can move quicker. Well, there are indicators in the fossil records that those dinosaurs were, in fact, reptiles, cold blood, and so they would have needed that warmth to keep their blood at the proper viscosity so that they could actually have uh, some thought patterns eventually in their brains where their blood has to get to. So all that to say, it's very probable that prior to the flood, the atmospheric conditions were entirely different. And then when God released the waters from the bowels of the earth and released the waters from the sky, and remember this morning when I was reading out of chapter 2, if you were here this morning, I read in chapter 2 and I, I made mention of a certain verse uh, because it says this, um, verse 5 in chapter 2, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had, had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground, or the whole surface of the ground. So think about this for a moment. It's very possible that prior to Noah's flood, that no rain had fallen from the sky. Had fallen from the sky. It's very plausible that moisture would rise when the diurnal temperature changes from night to day. That a moisture would rise and it would fall back to the ground and it would simply water the ground. You see it when it when it becomes fall. You walk outside and your your grass is covered with dew. You ever wonder where that condensation came from? There's just a saturation of moisture in the air, and warm air can hold more moisture. So that warm air would just allow that diurnal temperature change to where you'd have a dew point or a mist that would actually water the surface of the earth. So think about this for a moment. Why, when we get to the story of Noah, and God said, I'm going to cause it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, do you imagine if Noah, a preacher of righteousness, began to warn the people that water is going to fall from the sky, if they'd never seen it before, what do you think they would say to Noah? You're a nutcase. How's water going to fall from the sky? So his faith would have been tremendous. Well, we can't. It, it's only conjecture. Peter tells us later that the world that then was was destroyed by water. The world that then was, was destroyed, and it was destroyed by water. So the flood, the if there was that canopy and that was the waters that fell from the sky, what would happen to the heat that was trapped by the canopy? Just like when you roll your window down in your car to try and let the hot air out, 
the waters coming down would allow the hot air out, you would have a cooling, and the air around the earth would neutralize with ambient air beyond the canopy, which would be super cold. And so the earth would experience a rapid cooling. It wouldn't last because the sun would begin to warm the land up again, but you would have a very rapid ice age. Well, it's very possible and very plausible that that is what transpired. There was a rapid ice age, and thus now we have polar ice caps and we have mountains that have perpetual glaciers upon them. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real uh, possibility. The text certainly warrants that that is what could have transpired. But even more importantly, we see the life of Job. And in the book of Job, and you can read this on your own, but you can go to chapters uh, 38, 39, and you will read about two dinosaur-like animals, the Leviathan and the Behemoth. And the Behemoth, it talks about the tail of the Behemoth is like the cedars of Lebanon. It's a very large animal, and it seems to have, and it's very possible that there's a description of a seropod or a large diplodocus type. And how many of you know what the diplodocus or the seropods are? They're the long necks, if you will. Some of you would remember this like little fish. But okay. Um, at any rate, so uh, I am I am a um, I'm not dogmatic, but I am a believer in a young Earth. I believe that we have not been here very long. I think there's uh, evidences outside of the Word of God that we could say those would lend itself to say we've not been here as long as they would purport. For instance, the Earth's magnetic field is very significant. We've been measuring the Earth's magnetism for over 100 years, and it is constant, and it has a constant rate of decay. And its rate of decay, extrapolated out, is with a half-life of 1,400 years. So every 1,400 years, the Earth's magnetism is half of what it was 1,400 years ago. So we can measure the Earth's magnetism today, and we can know, because we've been measuring it consistently for over 100 years, that 1,400 years ago, it would be two times as strong as it is today. You can go back... 2,800 years, and it would be eight, four times as strong. You go back another 1,400, and it would be eight times. What does that equate to? That's 28, uh, 42, 4,200 years. You go back 4,200, it would be eight times as strong as it is today. You go another 1,400 years, what does that equate to? 66, is that right? 56, that's the word I was looking for, 56. 5,600 years, it would be 16 times as strong as it is today. You go back one more cycle, one more cycle, basically 7,000 years, and it would be 32 times the strength it is today. There are those who would say, that the Earth's core that cannot generate, it, it, it doesn't, it's, it's not 
capable of internal generation of more magnetism that 32 times the strength of it is today would be equivalent to that of a thermonuclear star, which has a core that is capable of generating magnetism. We don't have that. And so it's very improbable. In fact, they say uh, they measure some electrical, uh, uh, electric magnetism is measured in joules. And, and is that right, Kurt? Yeah, I'm getting it right. All right. And they say if you go back as much as 20,000 years, the joule heat generated by the magnetism would be so hot that the earth itself would melt. The earth itself would melt. We have the measurements that say it's consistent. So one would say that the Earth's age, based on the magnetism, couldn't be millions and millions of years unless you come up with a secondary assumption that somewhere along the line, the magnetism decay has changed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and there are, there are numerous evidences that would point to a young Earth. And so that... Those are predominant why I am a young earth. Let me give you one more, and I've shared this before, and I'm going to share it again because not everybody has heard this before. But right now in paleontology, which is the study of the fossil records, if you will, in paleontology they have what is known as index fossils. So when they dig into a rock strata or the side of a mountain and they get down far, and they find certain fossils in a rock strata because they consistently find them at certain levels, and they've done what's known as radiocarbon dating, uh, radiometric dating, and they have several different methods. There are three predominant methods. But when they do that, they've estimated that this animal that lived underwater is 360 million years old. So now they find it so prolifically at those rock strata levels that every time they find it anywhere else, they automatically label the rock strata that it was found in at 360 million years old. So any other fossils found in that same rock strata, they automatically attribute it an age of 360 million years old. Well, that seems right. It seems normal. It would seem good. And I want you to comprehend this because you may not remember from uh, the education that you may have received and all of uh, the, the science that you may have received in your textbooks in grade school and uh, middle school and high school where they are coming from a uh, naturalistic view and uh, proposing evolution as factual. Understand that the year of 360 million years old, the next level up is like the Jurassic period of 275 million years ago when the terrible lizards walked the face of the earth. And supposedly those animals became somewhat extinct, but there was a process of evolution, and there's uh, evolutionary ages after that all the way up to uh, modern man. Well, here's the interesting part. A fishing boat caught one of those fossils alive. It's called a coelacanth, the fish. 
funny thing about the Siva Kingdom is it's little fins. They have like little arms, and then the fins are on the end of the arms, and they look like they could have been a transitional, if you believed in evolution, like this was one that maybe actually walked out on the land. It has little arms and little legs, and maybe it was a transitional animal. And so they even have used this as a possibility. Until we caught one off the coast of Madagascar. And the coelacanth that was caught living is identical to the fossils that are supposedly 350 million years old. One has to ask the question, how did evolution skip the coelacanth? Because he looks exactly the same as these fossils that are 360 million years old. Unless you think that only one was caught, now off the coast of Japan, they're catching entire schools of coelacanth. So one has to ask the question, how did you interpret the information before a live one was caught? We have the same evidence as we did before, but clearly these creatures that are in that rock strata are not 360 million years old because they've had no quote-unquote evolutionary change. There's a problem. Data has been interpreted incorrectly. Now, I won't go there tonight, but I will simply say that there are in the tens of, it, it's probably in the hundreds now, of indexed fossils that we have now discovered of coelacanth. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And how they had been graded in terms of their age and how that creature that supposedly had evolved into all these other creatures, we now have living ones, and they look exactly the same as the fossils. So it's a problem with the data and its interpretation. So I just leave that with you. You can come up with your own understanding. I, my worldview is that the Word of God is true. It's true. And so... Science will eventually catch up to the Word of God, and there will be enough discovery to find out, oh, God, you had it right from the very get-go. And there's very interesting things, and we won't take the time tonight to go there, but many, many anomalies that can be answered from the Word of God. So well, let's pick up. If there was no other questions, uh, let's pick up in chapter 2. We begin in chapter 2, verse 4, because this is the, this is the beginning, if you will, of the generation of, of the heavens and the earth. And so uh, my goal is to go verse by verse, and we're going to cover some of the detail here. Uh, we, we'll, we'll cover what's in the text. We'll look at some interesting things. We will be introduced in chapter 3 uh, to the serpent, and from there we will platform off uh, when angels were created and that kind of thing. And those are uh, certainly questions of interest that people have. But let's begin. Uh, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb uh, of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Incidentally, that 
the context with which verses 5 uh, and 6 are written denotes that it occurred like this more than just one day. It was an ongoing process that this happened. What that length of time is, we don't know. Uh, verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Let me stop there for just a moment. Remember, if you were with us last Sunday night and last Sunday morning, I mentioned in the order of complexity that the word in the Hebrew for created is bara, and in the order of complexity, the first time it is used is in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. One would be able to very fairly say that God began with the building blocks. He made all of the elements of the periodic table, and he made the space with which they would occupy, and he made, then he started time. The next time the word bara is used in the text is when he makes the animals. It would be reasonable for us to say that before he created the animals, everything else he made, he formed and fashioned with that which he already had made. Does that make sense? So he made the building blocks, and he starts forming and fashioning things. He collects the waters in one place, gathers them together, causes the dry ground to appear. That's just form and fashion. But when he comes to the animals, day four, day five, he creates the animals. He creates the whales and the large fish of the sea. He creates the fowls of the air. And so there's something in the order of complexity that is very different even from the herb that comes in the third day and the trees and the shrubs. Even though they're living, there's something in an order of complexity that is greater when he makes animals. I would, along with several other, uh, I'll call them theologians, uh, I think that's what they are, they have their uh, degrees in theology, that would hold that when God did that creative work, it was when he made the materials for the soul, if you will. And certainly we would recognize that animals have personalities, right? Our soul is our mind, will, and emotions. Have you ever had a strong-willed animal? Yeah, I've had a strong-willed animal. Doesn't want to be disciplined, doesn't want to learn. Uh, we named him Matthew. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway. Uh, we have, we have, uh, we've had, we've had dogs. I, we had to get rid of a dog because he would not, he would not learn. He was a German Shepherd. Eventually, he bit me. Well, that was enough to say, we're going to head head on down the road. Uh, so, animals though have personalities. My dog Amos, Amos has got a great personality. I love Amos. He waits for me at the front door. When he sees my car pull up, he starts howling at the front door, and he waits for me. And then he scolds me when I open up the door, and he lets me know I'm in trouble for leaving him during the day. And so then i got to get down on the ground, and i got to play with him. And he's, he's going to be 14 years old, I think, this Christmas, 13 or 14 years old. He's an old guy. But he behaves for the first 10 minutes I'm home like he was a puppy again. And i got to get down on the ground, and then we wrestle, we butt heads, he starts chewing on my ears, and we just, we have this little routine, and then he prances around, and I, you know, I reach my hands out to grab his paws, and he pulls his paws back, and he gets in this little arch position, and his nose is sticking out there, and I'll put my hand over here, and he turns his nose to try and bite my hand over there, and I'll reach over here to grab this one, and he just moves around, and then 
After about 10 minutes, he's warm. <laughs> and then old steps in, and he goes, and he finds his little place, and he lays down. But he's got personality. It's awesome. Matthew was recently married in the last three months. Olivia recently got married. They've not been around the house. Oh, man, when they come over, they're in big trouble with Amos. I mean, he howls at them for a long time, and then he avoids them. <laughs> come here, Amos, and he'll walk right by him. But he's got personality. And so it's that soul part. And I would just hold that, that was that order of complexity. God made all the stuff. And when he made animals, he gave them something more. It's an order of complexity up. Then when he makes man, it's an order of complexity even up higher. And I believe it's where God made the spirit. And it's interesting to note that the scripture says, God said, let us make man in our image. And we saw even from this morning that we serve a personal God who has revealed himself in a triune relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we were made in his image, how interesting that we would have body, soul, and spirit. We are, in fact, a trichotomy. We are three in one. The, the crescendo of God's creative work, man, is resplendent with the creator's invisible qualities, if you will, a three-in-one nature. And so I just think that's very interesting. And so the Lord God formed man, verse 7, of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Now we talked a little bit and we've talked on a number of occasions about the complexity of man. We talked about hemoglobin this morning. We talked about DNA and a number of uh, a number of times a few previously. So let's just move forward here. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let me stop in verse 9 for just a moment because this is some of the fascinating things that others have discovered. I mentioned last Sunday morning some of the unique things associated with the Word of God and the Hebrew language in that the Hebrew alphabet and the Hebrew language does not have numeric numbers like we have Aramaic numbers in our uh, modern English. 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. They don't have numbers. And what they have is of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, there is an ascribed number value for each letter. And I mentioned some interesting things associated with those numbers in Genesis 1.1. Then we looked at John 1.1 in the Greek because the Greek is the same way. It doesn't have numeric numbers like we do, but each of the 24 letters has a ascribed value to them. And so you can you could write a word in Hebrew and you could find out what the product of that word is in numeric value. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you can total up the number of the, if it had seven letters, you take the numeric value of each letter and that gives you the product of the word. Does that make sense? And 
I noticed, or I, I mentioned that there are those who notice some very unique things. And again, just to reiterate, in case you weren't here, but Genesis 1-1 in Hebrew is seven words, and it's 28 letters. They're all divisible by seven. That's interesting in and of itself. There are over 33 different attributes of the number seven in those first seven words. But here's the most interesting piece associated with that. Someone figured this out, but they took the total number of letters times the product of the letters divided by the total number of words times the product of the words, and it equals 3.1416, which is pi. Pi is one of two mathematical constants in the entire universe. How interesting. Someone would say, oh, I mean, it could be random, improbable, but could be random. But then when you look at John 1.1 in the Greek, same formula, it translates into or equals 2.71218, which is the number value for E. E is the second constant in the universe. And one starts to scratch their head and say, well, now that's in a statistical probability and impossibility that that could happen in such that manner. And it's fascinating to me. And if you're not familiar with the value of E, it comes up everywhere in advanced math. And certainly all of physics that we understand depends on the value of E. And it remains constant. And so it's just very interesting. So all that to say, those same people identified some unique patterns in the Hebrew language. In fact, years ago, many of the Hebrew scholars and the Jewish rabbis recognized even making the statement, when Messiah comes, he will interpret the totality of the scriptures to us, up to and including the words, the letters, and the spaces between the words and the spaces between the letters. Well, there was a little revival in that, and so men began to look in the advent of the computer to be able to input this uh, Hebrew text into the computers. They discovered something known as equidistant lettering. I mention this only to say there's something very unique about equidistant lettering. What that simply means is in the Hebrew, reading from right to left, if it was taking every fourth letter in a verse, every fourth letter might spell out a word. And it would be a unique word. For instance, I'll give you an example. You, you want to hear an example? One example. The book of Genesis. Every 49 letters from the first T, or the equivalent of Hebrew T, I don't know my Hebrew well enough to uh, quote that, but the, the equivalent of T, 49 spaces from that letter, you come to the equivalent of O. 49 spaces from that letter, you come to the equivalent of our R. 49 spaces from that letter, you come to the equivalent of our A. Chorus. It spells chorus. You think, eh, 49 is divisible by 7. I mean, that might have some interest. But you could do a statistical analysis and you discover that it should show up statistically with equidistancing a certain random number of times, uh, approximately six times in the entirety of the Old Testament. Well, so it shows up in that one every 49 letters. So then you go from Genesis to Exodus, you find the first T, you count 49 letters, 
come to O, you come to 49 more letters, you come to R, 49 more letters, A. And you think, I'm not working. It's consistent. You think, all right, well, certainly then in Leviticus, we might expect to find that. And guess what? We don't. But when we come to numbers, it does it backwards. You come to the first A, and you count 49 letters, you get R. You get 49 letters, you get O. 49 letters, you get P. So Torah pointing back this way, or in their case, pointing back this way. You get to Deuteronomy, and it does the exact same thing as it does in Numbers. Every 49 spaces, it tells Torah pointing back. So you have Genesis and Exodus pointing this way. You have Numbers, Deuteronomy pointing back this way, and they're all pointing to Leviticus. And you think, well, what's in Leviticus that would be so amazing? Here's something interesting. You come to the first Yod in Leviticus, and you count seven spaces. You come to the Hay. Then you count another seven spaces, and you come to the Vav. And then you count another seven spaces, and you come to the Hay. It's yad vav which is Jehovah. And so you have this equa- equation, or Yahweh, this equation that the Torah always points to God. Now, that's just interesting. Now, then, why do I say that? Why did I tell you all that? Somebody else saw, figured that out. I heard that someone else tell that. Verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Huh. Yeah, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In that verse, and in that verse alone, in Hebrew, equidistant spaces, both forward and backward. You ready for this? 26 different names of trees that you and I both know, like the tamarisk tree, the acacia tree, the oak tree, the pistachio tree. I just happen to know all of them because I took a picture of them. Twenty-six at least, this is what I know for sure. The the tamarisk, the terebinth, the thicket, the citron, the acacia, almond, wheat, date palm, cedar, aloe, grape, uh, boxthorn, cassia, pomegranate, gopher wood, thornbush, olive, pistachio, hazel, fig, willow, oak, vine, barley, chestnut, and poplar. All in one verse spaced, equidistant letters contained in one verse. The probability of that transpiring is like extra specially zero. It demonstrates the magnificence of God's spoken word. His spoke, it is absolutely perfect and there are hidden treasures for us to discover. So it's a little side note, is that going to change your day? Probably not. Is it going to affect how you uh, engage in your driving behavior tomorrow on the freeways or on the roads? Probably not. But to know that it's there, it is absolutely fascinating. And what it does for me is it makes me want to dig a little bit more into the Word of God. What other hidden treasures, Lord, 
when you have it. Remember the scripture in Proverbs that said it is to the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is to the glory of kings to search a matter out. What You imagine the guy who discovered that? He was probably sitting at his desk, and he's reading in Hebrew, and he's like, no way. No way. If there's another tree in this verse, I'm just going to fall out of my chair. Oak? Seriously, God? That's so amazing. And he must have just like, honey, come here. And she, he calls her in, and he's explaining, and she's all, wow, that's great. What do you want for dinner? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that guy was probably just blown away. Blown away. I can remember there are times, the reason I say it like that, because there have been times where I, like, I find things in the Bible, and I'm like, are you kidding? Tim, come here. Let me show you something. And I explain all this, and I said, that just means God is. And she goes, you mean like by faith, right? Because God is. Amen? And I'm like, yes, that's true. <laughs> and I have to land the plane. But the idea there is there is so much, and we have the opportunity to dig. Okay. Let's keep moving. Uh, verse 10. Uh, and I'll keep track of this. Okay. Uh, now a river, verse 10, went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The first, or the name of the first is Pishon, and it is the one that which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The Bedouin, or Bedillion, and the Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tedekel. Uh, it is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. Now, let me reiterate. This Euphrates would not be the same Euphrates of today. Because remember, Peter tells us the world that then was, was destroyed. So the flood destroyed this world. So people say, where is Eden? Eden is no more. It's, it, it's been destroyed. It's no more. Does that make sense? Whatever this pre-Noatic flood world looked like, it is totally changed. And so, even though we have the same name, Euphrates, even though we have the na same name, Assyria, that's th the name carries a meaning, but it's not the same place, if that makes sense. Okay? Uh, that's important to note. Uh, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Verse 18. And the Lord God said, incidentally, that verse 16 and 17, uh, th those verses are the command. That's the command. You can eat of all, but don't eat of this. Right? So now, have you noticed this in your life? When, when you were younger, did you, did you notice, uh, mom says, you can eat anything in the cupboard, just don't open the cookie jar, because I baked some cookies earlier today, and uh, therefore uh, our guests that are going to be here now. And I'm going to be gone for the next four hours. What is like the only thing that occupied your brain? <laughs> cookies. What could you smell? What You'd open up the refrigerator and the milk would be saying, poor bread. Just poor bread. 
one of those cookies dipped in me would be perfect. And it's just so interesting that our nature is to think about the one thing that we've been told we cannot have. Is it, I mean, is that, it's like that, quote unquote, the cliche, the forbidden fruit, right? I mean, the very thing we think about is the thing that we've been told to abstain from. And whether Adam had that condition, recognize this, that Adam, when he was created, he did not yet have a sinful nature. We don't know what Adam thought like because we've never thought like that. Does that make sense? We've never thought that way because we've never had the ability to think the way he was able to think. He maybe never gave it a thought. It maybe never even entered into his mind. Until a little later. (laughs) Someone might say, when his wife was born. (laughs) I'm not saying that. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Uh, Let's digress. Verse 18. And the Lord God said... It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Let me stop there for a moment and recognize this, that today on the planet there are at least 18,000 different species of animals. And when I say species, we would be talking like a species would be uh, canine. Now, in the species of canine, there are a tremendous variety of dogs. So the DNA would allow for all kinds of variety and different kinds, if you will. But there are about 18,000 on the planet. Now, we recognize insects. There are certain insects where there are, I mean, there's just like a, a million different classifications of insects. But all that to say, it's assumable that at least half of the animals that have ever walked this planet have come to the place of extinction. Imagine for a moment if there were 36,000 different types and God was bringing them all to Adam to name. That's going to take a long time. But think about this. What was his vocabulary? I'm not sure how many words I have in my vocabulary, but I think I have a pretty decent-sized vocabulary. I'm a word guy. I mean, I absolutely love, love. I read the dictionary sometimes. How corny is that, right? I mean, that's... That's about as cheesy as it gets. And that, believe me, I've sat there and read the dictionary and just fascinated with words, the entomology of words. and I mean, I just, I love that stuff. And so (laughs) I have a pretty decent vocabulary. I play Scrabble, and I'm like, I I pride myself in, you know, being able to take seven tiles and spell big words with seven tiles. And uh, crossword puzzles or the scramble in in the newspaper, I like to be able to look at the letters and figure them out before my son Jonathan can. I mean, we, we, we have little competitions that we do. We used to take the boggle cubes, and we would take all the 16 cubes out, and when then we, someone would leave the room, and we would start with a five-letter word. We'd put it in there, and the person would have to find the five-letter word. Then they'd leave, and we'd do a six-letter word, a seven-letter word, an eight-letter, and we would alternate, and we would try and get to who could hide the longest word in the 16 tiles without someone being able to find it, right? And so we would end up, you know, we would find... 13-letter words in there. And uh, so we were just building our vocabulary. And Adam, I mean, I'm certain I don't know 30,000 words. 
I'm pretty sure I don't know 5,000 words. I'm pretty sure I'm limited to a smaller number. And he is naming all of the animals. First of all, it would take a long time to do that. And so we don't have the timelines in all what transpired. And I'm leading up to the fact that as time goes by, he will have a wife that God will fashion for him. And in the process of time, the serpent will come on the scene. But we don't know what that timeline is. Does that make sense? There are some that are out there that would simply say that they faced temptation on the very first day. But that's just not plausible from the text and the context. So all that to say, let's, let's continue to move. Uh, so verse 20. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Do you see that? And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her. Uh, made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two, and they shall become one flesh. Let me note in verse 24 that we have God's initial mention of family. For this cause, a man shall leave his what? His father and mother. That connotates a family. And he shall... Cleave or be joined to his wife. That is the institution of marriage. So we have the institution of marriage being established, and we have the institution of family being established. These are two gifts of God for mankind. And every good and perfect gift, the New Testament tells us, flows from the Father of lights. These are good gifts that God has given to mankind. And so I simply want to encourage you in not only if you're married, that you would find the joy of being married, the joy of being with the one whom God has for you. And if you're, you're all part of a family, you all got a mama and a papa, now it may be a diversity of how that looked. Maybe you didn't grow up with your mom and your dad. Maybe you were orphaned. Maybe all of those pieces, bottom line is you're part of the family of God if your faith is in Jesus Christ. And it is, it is a gift, and it's the gift of God. We are part of one another, and that's important. We need each other. We need each other. Look at your neighbor and say, we need each other. Mumble, mumble, mumble. We need each other. Okay, good. Uh, let's pick up. And then verse 25, it says, and they were both naked, uh, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. That brings us to the end of chapter 2. I think I've covered really all that I wanted to cover at that point. Does anybody have any questions in relationship to chapter 2 or some of the things that we talked about in chapter 2? I would. I definitely would. I think the earth and the universe and all that is here 
probably somewhere between six and seven thousand years old. Let me tell you why I believe that. For a number of reasons. Number one, I, I take Genesis very literally, uh, but the early church fathers did as well. Now, the early church fathers, and if you you can you can go on to blueletterbible.com and go to the um, it's a great uh, just blue le- blueletterbible.com, and they have a whole bunch of tools and study tools in the left hand uh, column, and in the study tools you can click on a timeline, and it will give you all of the uh, people uh, that have been uh, prominent names in the Bible, if you will. So you get timelines. Like, I mean, you'll discover that uh, Noah's dad, Lamech, was alive. Or when he was born, no- Adam was still alive. lived 962 years. So when Lamech was born, Adam was still alive. They could have had conversations. What do you think Adam might have said, right, to pass down information? Adam walked with God in the garden. He, He was perfect. His brain was working at all capacity, firing on all cylinders. His memory must have been absolutely fascinating. His ability to have dominion over all of the beasts, he probably, I mean, the scripture tells us every manner of animal has been trained. It's very possible that they could have trained seropods to move very large stones to build very large buildings, like pyramids and things. Pretty cool. Very possible, right? So, those early fathers are listed there in that. And the early fathers believed and taught. Now, keep this in mind. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, his own testimony, but the testimony of the Spirit of God, the the disciple that Jesus loved, he did not take martyrdom the way the other disciples did. He, it's very likely, all the way up until about 100 A.D., maybe a little bit beyond that. He has disciples, guys like Polycarp. And we have Polycarp's teachings of John, how John understood the teachings of Jesus. Well, that's very helpful for us. We want to teach the way it was taught. And the early fathers told, fascinating, that the seven days of creation were prophetic in nature and are a picture of the timeline of God and man. Up to and including the seventh day of rest. Psalm 90 tells us that for the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, as a thousand years is one day. We're told in Revelation that Jesus will return and he will rule and reign for how long? One thousand years or the Sabbath day, when the whole world will rest. There are very intelligent man, men, uh, guys like Usher and uh, some, some uh, science guys that you would know that have gone through the entirety of the Old Testament. And based on the genealogies that are in the Old Testament, they've estimated when Adam and Eve would have walked 
and the earth. And that was at about 4,000 B.C. So here we are at 2016. We're like in day six. This is day six. Here's the interesting part. The prophet Hosea in the sixth chapter tells us, and in fact, if you have your Bible and you can find Hosea, uh, it's right after the book of Daniel. Uh, Hosea 6 says something very interesting. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Who's Hosea talking to? Talking to the Jews. Right? The Jews cease to be a nation. And the Lord raised them up on the second day. 1948. May of 1948, Israel became a nation again. Israel was raised up. He says, on the third day, he will raise us up to live in his sight. It's very possible that that is the second advent of the Messiah, where they will live, the Jews will live with him in his sight. Well, day three has got to be it, but there are estimates that would put Adam and Eve at about 385 B.C., 3,850 or 3,900 and whatever it is. But that 2016 is not out of the realm of day six, if you will. And so all that to say, um, I, I would hold kind of with them that I think the seventh day is about to embark on us. I think we're living, when I say I think we're living in the last days, I believe that we are living in the last of the last days. I think we are at the year of the cross. And Jesus' return is very soon. I think we need to be about our Father's business perpetually. I don't think there's time to be wasted. I don't think there's time to be lollygagging. I don't think there's time to be, um, I mean, if you're, if you're here tonight and you're not right with the Lord, there's no time to not be right with the Lord. He's coming. He's coming. And he's bringing a reward, which is excellent. It's excellent. In, in relationship to that, we don't want to be one who is an unwise builder. We want to build with wisdom, right? So be a, be a wise builder and uh, recognizing that uh, there is no prophecy. There is no prophecy that need be fulfilled before Christ breaks through and the sound of the trumpet is hailed and the dead in Christ rise and we who are alive and remain are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. There is no prophecy. There is a message in the book of Romans that reminds us that we're still here until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until the fullness of the Gentiles. That's us. That's our neighbors. That's our co-workers. That's our associates. Listen. Your sharing of your faith with the person that you work with, your obedience to share Jesus Christ and salvation through him and through him alone, and 
their reception of the gospel? What if they were the last ones? What if they're the last ones? Right, because there is a last one. Until the fullness comes in, if there's 13 more that need to yet receive Christ, this, we're going to get to the point where the last one's going to say yes to Jesus, and we're gonna, the trumpet's going to sound. And we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. He knows the number. Everybody understands that, right? He knows the end from the beginning. He knows. His will is that none should perish, but some will. He's the one who told us. Wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to death and destruction, and many enter through it. Narrow is the road that leads to life. Narrow the gate. Few find it. Well, there's yet some, because we're still here. He knows the number. And so when the last one says yes, I believe the trumpet's going to sound, the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive and remain, we're going to be translated instantly. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. This mortal will put on immortality, this corruption will be will put on incorruption, and we will be with the Lord in the air. It will happen in the twinkling of an eye. Here today, now you see me, now you don't. And we'll meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will be with him forever. When he comes to rule and reign down here, and he comes riding on the white horse, faithful and true, written on his side, guess who's going to be riding with him? You and I. You and I. I don't even ride horses. Horses look at me and say, pick someone else. <laughs> but I want to have a horse. I don't mount that thing. And we're going to come riding in, ushering in the kingdom of God. Peace. those of you who wanted to know when the angels get to it, how many want to know when the angels get to it? All right. All of us have a good day. Uh, let me leave you with Job 38. In Job 38, there's a portion of the scripture that would reveal to us that the morning stars were rejoicing at the creation of the world. You could do a further study in Ezekiel 28. You could do a further study in Isaiah chapter 14. We'll pick up next week right at that point, so we'll talk about what that looks like. Um, the truth is we don't fully know when the angels were created, but we know for sure that it was before or at the same time on day one in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So it's possible that it was at that point they were created. It's possible that they were created beforehand. Most theologians would say that's not what happened. They don't believe that to be what has happened. Angels are not eternal beings. They will, from here on out, they are eternal beings, just like we are, but they don't come from eternity. Does that make sense? They had a beginning. God created or created beings like that. So we'll pick up on that next week. We'll be in. Uh, we'll begin in Revelation. Or uh, we'll begin in Genesis chapter three, and uh, we'll pick up. Uh, if there was, if you have any questions, write down your questions. You can be sure to. Uh, you can text them to me. You can 
uh, email them to me. You can just bring them with you, and we'll do our best to uh, answer questions uh, in the beginning of next week. Hopefully this is helpful, helpful for you, and we'll, uh, we'll just keep moving forward. Next Sunday morning we'll be in Revelation chapter 3. By the way, Genesis. Cha- i got to get finished with the Revelation thing. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, and uh, we will still be in this, the generations of the heavens and the earth, which is really section 2 of the book of Genesis. So I encourage you to read through that portion. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the written word. We thank you, Father, for the truth contained, and it really is the absolute. It is the written word, and your word tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed, and so we know this to be the word of God. And so, Lord, thank you for your revelation of yourself, that you are uh, an intimate God, and you desire deep relationship with us. And so, Lord, we, we simply cry out, God, we want more of you less of us and more of you. So, Lord, be glorified in our lives. May we draw nearer to you. And as we draw nearer to you, as James reminds us in the New Testament, we draw near to you, you draw near to us. So, God, may that closeness be, um, may it just occur in our lives uh, with hunger and thirst in us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in the grace of our Lord and Savior. Have an amazing, amazing night and week in Jesus. God bless you guys.